I'm wildlife veterinarian, Dr. Michelle Neeland, and this is the Wildlife Health Connections Podcast. We're taking you deep into every corner of wildlife health and conservation. Let's go. Hi, friends, and welcome to our first episode of 2021. Apologies for taking a little longer than expected to get this episode out, but I think it's going to be well worth the wait. Today's episode is a little different because it was actually recorded live from the clinic at New England Wildlife Center's Cape Cod branch. New England Wildlife is a nonprofit organization that actually operates two different wildlife care and education centers here in Massachusetts. One is in Weymouth and one is in Barnstable down on Cape Cod. We heard a little bit about New England Wildlife Center back in episode number four, where Dr. Rob Adamski talked about some of the cases he saw during his time working as a veterinarian there a few years ago. Now, it's one thing to just listen to someone tell stories about what it's like and what goes on in a typical day as a wildlife vet, but it's entirely different to actually hear real-time audio recorded in the moment while those vets and technicians are actually working on a case. So that's what we wanted to do for this episode. A couple weeks ago, Vin and I packed up our recording gear and drove down to New England Wildlife Center's Cape Cod branch. And when we got there, we mic'd up the staff and just let the recording roll while wildlife vet Dr. Priya Patel was working through the cases there. And let me tell you, we captured it all. Not just the highs, but also the disappointments and the challenges that are all part of the reality of treating wildlife. If you like this episode format and you want to see more of these live recorded episodes from the field, please let us know. You can hit us up on Instagram or Facebook. Both of those links are in our show notes. And it would also be awesome if you could leave us a review and let us know what you like. That will help us bring you even better episodes in the future. And just one more quick request. Check out the other links in our show notes to learn more about all the awesome work they do at New England Wildlife Center and all the different ways you can help support their work. The goal of this podcast really is to help bring a voice and to elevate those working in the field of wildlife health. So really the best way you can support this podcast is actually to support them. Because really, that's why we're here in the first place. That's why we show up and produce these episodes week after week. So now let's get to it. Here's part one of our episode recorded live from New England Wildlife Center's Cape Cod branch. Enjoy. Cool. Live. Um, yeah. Watch and... what I say. <laughs> so before we head into the clinic, let's let two of the stars of our show today introduce themselves. Executive Director Zach Mertz and Wildlife Vet Dr. Priya Patel. So my name is Zach Mertz. I'm the Executive Director of the Birdsey Cape Wildlife Center, which is the Cape Cod branch of the New England Wildlife Centers. And our organization runs two nonprofit wildlife veterinary hospitals and education centers. So the, our platform is providing Shark Point veterinary care to sick, injured, and orphaned wildlife, but in the process, pulling the community and students into what we're doing. Meaning that if we're caring or providing surgery for a fox that comes in for a broken leg, in normal times, we'll have students right there with us. We'll have veterinary students, undergraduates, uh, middle schoolers, you name it, a whole cross-section of our community will be participating in one way or another. And the reason we believe in doing this is because we believe there is no better way to learn science or no more powerful learning tool 
than hands-on experience, right? And so when you take these kids and bring them into the process and give them a real and meaningful reason to be learning science, meaning learning what blood draws look like or why medications work or what an x-ray is, it reinforces these concepts that they learn in the classroom and gives them a lifelong uh, memory and something to relate to. But as we grow and become more of a regional organization, we're focusing our efforts not just on veterinary care and not just on in-class education. We're also expanding to include research and we're expanding to include more public health services. So in the process of treating these individual animals one by one, we collect data and we take metrics. And now with our broader reach, we're able to use those metrics to leverage more and more emerging trends, uh, try to help address environmental problems that are taking place in our community. And so as we grow, we expect to take on a bigger role in research. I'm Dr. Priya Patel. I'm the Wildlife Medical Director for the Nuna Wildlife Centers. I am mostly based out of the Barnstable Hospital, but I do work in both Weymouth and Barnstable. So I started at the Newland Wildlife Centers, I'm aging myself now, but <laughs> um, 13 years ago as an undergrad student. And I always wanted to be, you know, my goal was always to be a veterinarian, but I don't think I fully understood what field I wanted to go into until I did their undergraduate summer internship. And from day one, I fell in love with working with wildlife and wanted to pursue that as a career. And I call myself a lifer because I kept leaving for short periods of time, but always came back. And then I left for vet school. Um, I went to the Royal Veterinary College in London. And I would come back and do mini externships as well, just so that I could keep, you know, my hands, you know, working with wildlife. And um, once I graduated, I did a one-year um, wildlife medicine and conservation internship at um, uh, Tufts Wildlife Clinic. And then returned to New England Wildlife Center and worked part-time there um, until a full-time position was available, which was when the Cape Wildlife Center uh, needed emergency support. Interestingly, New England Wildlife Center didn't always have two different locations. Originally, it was just the Clinic and Education Center in Weymouth, Massachusetts. But a few years ago, they sort of came to the rescue. And when another wildlife clinic on Cape Cod was at risk of being permanently closed due to lack of funding, they stepped in. So we are here at the Barnstable location today, which we took over about three years ago. It was run formally by another organization that lost funding. And so New England Wildlife Centers, despite being a small entity, a small community-based nonprofit, uh, just saw how important the veterinary safety net to wildlife was on Cape Cod, meaning there are some incredible habitats here, um, just an amazing cross-section of animals. And if that safety net was lost, meaning we'd leave all of these species and animals without day-to-day uh, -day veterinary care, that was going to bespell trouble for not only the environment, but also for public health, meaning there are a lot of... Um, rabies submissions and distemper outbreaks and, and all the stuff that goes along with wildlife that the community really needs to have a place they can turn to and depend on for this type of care. So we saw the importance and a great financial risk and, and it was very scary to do, uh, but we launched now a three-year effort to stabilize and take it over. And today we're very happy to report we are um, officially part of the New England Wildlife Centers and are open seven days a week. Now that you have a little more backstory about the clinic, Let's jump in and see what cases are on the schedule for today. Okay, so are we, who are we doing first? I think we'll start with the scoter because I'm okay. really have, I'm really interested to see what's going to happen yeah. with this one. Um, and I've never had a case like this before, so which happens a lot in wildlife. Oh, <laughs> yeah. 
A scoter is a type of sea duck. There are several different species of scoters, but today we're looking at a white-winged scoter. So we are in the, I guess you would call it the radiology suite. Sure, yes. <laughs> Make it sound very official. Basically, we're in the x-ray room and we're looking at an x-ray um, of this white-winged scoter that was taken when was this? You this yesterday? was taken yesterday when he first came in. This is what we call a plop x-ray. So he looks very crooked on the x-ray um, and he, his wings are kind of overlap with his feet. Um, and we do these x-rays when animals come in and are not stable to be anesthetized for full radio positioned radiographs. Mm -hmm. So he was literally plopped on the plate. Um, we ran out of the room, took the x-ray and one of the most striking features is there's this huge radio opaque, meaning it's showing very white on the screen, mass at the end of his GI tract. And um, anything that's that bright white, you know, we're automatically thinking of some kind of potentially metal substance and what we go to is lead um, poisoning. And we see a lot of lead poisoning in wildlife, especially um, waterfowl, seabirds. Um, and it kind of is, you know, concentrated at the end, but we can see little particulates going all the way, you know, up to um, the ventriculus, which is the stomach. Um, and these guys eat a lot of crustaceans, mollusks, that kind of things. And so at first I was like, oh, it could be like broken up shell that, you know, is acting kind of a foreign mm. body. They can also get these things called enteroliths or cloacoliths. And it's kind of like when bile salts aren't absorbed properly and then they form a mass and then it just keeps building up. Um, feces and food particles and things like that. Um, on palpation, it feels very hard. Uh, and it's right at the end of the cloaca, so I'm hoping we can anesthetize him today um, to see if we can get that out, because I'm sure it's, he's very uncomfortable yeah, right now. Looking at this x-ray, that looks really uncomfortable. Yeah. And when he first got, so this is when he first got here, and then he was here and he pooped, so I said, oh, let's see what it looks like yeah, now that yeah. he pooped. And it oh, looks pretty much the, the same. same. Yeah. So it doesn't look like it's moving through. If you're super curious what the x-ray looked like, or if you want to see other pictures of the workup on our little scoter buddy, we've posted them on our Facebook and Instagram. And so last night we gave him some pain meds, fluids. Um, dehydration just makes this all worse and it's kind of a like never ending cycle. So mm -hmm. fluids. And then I also tubed him some mineral oil mm -hmm. to see if we could get any of this moving. So our goal for today is, so we're gonna, you're planning to fully anesthetize him? Yes. And we're gonna, or I should say you're going to, or, yes. <laughs> or um, I guess if you need a second set of hands, I'm here, but basically our goal is um, we're gonna try to milk that, whatever that hard substance is, milk it out and yes. see if we can get it to pass. And yes. Get it out. Yeah. If we can't get it out, maybe we can break it up a little bit so he can get it out. We don't want to damage anything. So basically, we're about to do a duck enema. And so we're anesthetizing him right now. And we start with, um, so we gas him down and he has a mask over his um, bill right now. And as soon as he's quiet, we can intubate him. So we're going to put a tube um, down his trachea so we can control his airway should he stop breathing. And because he's a sea duck, he's pretty much going to. <laughs> yes, sea ducks have a bad habit of not breathing well under anesthesia. Yes. We also have emergency drugs standing by just in case. So we use atropine in case the heart rate drops slower than we would like. And then if it's very, very slow, <laughs> we'll give him some epinephrine too. So we're checking his um, 
just visually looking at his blink reflex and that starts to slow down and then become absent when he's uh, sleepy. And then we also check muscle tone too. So if his, his wings start relaxing, his feet start relaxing, and then we know he's had a good plane of anesthesia to intubate him. So he's under right now. And as I start palpating him, he might you know, feel a little bit of pressure, so we'll monitor him. And um, if his heart rate goes up, we can just um, increase the anesthesia just to get him a little bit more sleepy. Um, but he, yeah, you can feel it as well. Yeah, it almost, you know, if this was a female, oh this egg-bound <laughs> almost yeah. like appearance. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling here what Pri is describing. It is, it is super hard, yeah. Little piece out. Oh my gosh, yeah. So, so Pri just got a little chunk of this out of the cloaca, and it's it's very gritty, very hard. Doesn't smell great. <laughs> <laughs> so with just some gentle pressure, it is breaking up, which is a good sign. Oh, you got another chunk out. He's not feeling any pain, but can only imagine if this was being done to me. <laughs> Not the most comfortable Not thing. the most comfortable. So she's doing a little little duck enema right now. Seeing if we can just continue to break up all that really firm material that's stuck up in there. As you can see, wildlife medicine is anything but glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, he's going to feel so much better. I know. <laughs> it seems like you got a fair amount out. Yeah. So we're doing one last enema flush here. A little bit more water through a tube up into his cloaca just seeing if we can flush out as much of that sandy gritty shell material as we can to help this guy out oops oops excuse you that <laughs> <laughs> yeah just this like milky tan brown gritty material is sort of just pouring out as we're doing the enema so we're definitely making progress. Yes. There's a lot of material coming out, so that's good. I'm glad you were here for my first duck enema. Yeah. I'm really happy that we got to share this together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and after a few more rounds of flushing, we wanted to see how much of that impacted material Priya was able to remove from his GI tract. So, time for another x-ray. So we're running in to take another quick x-ray to see how much progress they were able to make. Right. Fortunate to have digital x-rays so we can <laughs> see things instantaneously. Yeah. All right, moment of truth. And the x-ray is processing. But when we looked at the x-ray, the impaction was still there. It feels a lot better though. It does though, feel a lot better. But it doesn't look <laughs> a lot better on x-ray. Hmm. That's so strange. I definitely don't feel the same mass. So I think what we will probably do is load him up on fluids um, and then give him, see if he can excrete some more on his own. And then if we need to do this again, we can. But hopefully we've cleared the blockage. Yeah, kind of cleared the way so he can. It's just really it. surprising how much is still. I know, I thought we were going to see. See like nothing <laughs> more. I know, we got a lot out. So at this point, Priya's done all she can. And it's time to wake up our constipated little friend. 
a lot of times when they're coming out of anesthesia, they can go through an excitatory phase, which is what he's doing now. He's kind of kicking a little bit and paddling, um, but they can become depressed really quickly and heart rate drop, respiratory rate drop. Um, so we just wanna make sure that he's actually awaken through the excitatory phase. Birds have a very fast metabolism, so they metabolize the anesthetic drug really quickly. So they can wake up in a matter of minutes. If it was a, a dog or another type of mammal, it might take them a little bit longer and you might be here for like 10 minutes, 15 minutes sometimes. Another reason I love birds. <laughs> <laughs> hey, good morning, bud. All right, little guy. Back into your cage. So, duck Emma. <laughs> <laughs> didn't know you were going to do that today. <laughs> didn't have a, didn't have that on my calendar, but so glad. I drive home a lot of times, being like, didn't know I was going to do that today. <laughs> <laughs> so now the scoter is recovering back in his cage, but spoiler alert: it's not the last you'll hear about him today. We're going to come back to him a little later and let you know how things ended up, but for now. It's time for us to move on to our next case. A red-tailed hawk with a coracoid fracture. Quick anatomy lesson. The coracoid bones of birds connects the shoulder joint to the sternum on each side. So it's an important bone involved in flight. What's up with the hawk? So coracoid fracture uh, was shot, has two bullets, but there was no fresh entry wound, so we didn't know if it was related or not. Um, but it, one of the the bullets looks like potentially could have caused the coracoid fracture, okay. but it was hard to tell. Yeah, so um, you're not sure if, if the gunshot was a recent thing or if that's just exactly. something that happened that's old news yeah. that they're just still lodged in there. Yes. Unfortunately, we see a lot of wildlife coming in with BB shots and other types of gunshots, and you'd be surprised about how much they can <laughs> survive with. Um, yeah, lots of metal. No, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. It, it's sad. <laughs> it's sad. Sad and amazing. <laughs> yes. How long do they typically take coracoid fractures? Uh, so uh, fractures in general for bones, uh, three weeks, uh, three to four weeks. A lot of them um, heal in three weeks, which is awesome. And then it, another additional, probably three or four weeks of conditioning. So during that three week time, they've been cage rested. So their muscles atrophy. Um, so we need to help them build up that strength again. So we don't want them to go too crazy, so we start them outside in a small kind of flight cage where they can stretch their wings, move around a little bit, and then a larger flight cage where they can really build up those pectoral muscles. Today, Priya wants to take a final recheck x-ray of the hawk's coracoid fracture to make sure it's healed. So to safely do that, we'll need to put him under anesthesia. Um, so anytime you have a raptor under anesthesia, until he's completely out, someone is always holding their legs because those talons are going to be the most dangerous part to avoid and they can you know become light really quickly like we just saw but we were anticipating that so i'm going to remove his wing wrap so he has a figure eight wrap um, with vet wrap that's wrapped to the body so his whole wing is immobilized but the most important joint to mobilize is the shoulder because that's the joint most closely related to the coracoid and so to keep the bone stable so it can heal, we just wanna make sure he's not moving around. Um, so I'm just, I just cut the wrap off and I'm removing it. So now I'm extending the wing and he might actually react um, because it is a little bit stiff. This wing has been wrapped now for a month. Um, every week we take the wrap off, do a, uh, recheck rads, rads and then some PT to extend the wing. So I'm just gonna try to stretch it a little bit 
Um, and Veronica, if you grab a hold of his feet just in case he reacts, we don't want him to. So I'm gently just trying to extend the wing. And he's feeling it. <laughs> so I'm just gonna raise anesthesia just a little bit and give him some additional breaths. So the wing started out very stiff, which I anticipated after being wrapped for a week. Um, and I'm slowly just um, extending the wing by supporting the elbow as well as the carpus. And already it's twice, extending twice the length that it was, which is a good sign. And with coracoid fractures, you typically have better success just with wrapping the wing as opposed to trying to go in and doing something surgical. Yes, it's very, so the coracoid lines lies underneath all of that pectoral muscle mass and that's a huge amount of tissue right there. So to gain access to it, to be able to potentially like surgically stabilize it, you have to cut through all that muscle and mm. you don't want to risk damaging it. Um, and it's also right over the heart too. So any pins that you try to put in to try to stabilize it, you want to, you know, it's inches between going, being in the bone and then going out the other sure. side and potentially yeah. touching the heart. Yeah, makes sense. I have looked up, you know, different ways every time, you know, occasionally I'll get in a bird that has a very displaced coracoid. And so I, I feel like even with a wrap, sometimes it won't be well aligned. But every time I keep looking up new literature, it's like, no, it's <laughs> yeah, not advisable. And this particular bone is really important in helping them get vertical lift off the ground. So it's our first um, suspicious suspicion if people are describing a bird that's hopping around and can't get lift. And uh, if they can jump up to a, jump up a tree, they can glide back and forth pretty well. So a lot of them survive a little bit longer with this type of injury than say like a ulnar radial fracture. Um, and then with alignment, um, with smaller birds, like songbirds that come in with it, we actually don't wrap their wing at all because it's more stressful for them and we just cage dress them. Um, and because they're lighter, they can compensate with it not being perfectly aligned. Okay. All right, so they're getting ready to take another follow-up radiograph so we can see how that coracoid bone is healing. So we're moving the whole anesthesia machine into the x-ray room because obviously we don't want him waking up. And so now we're going to position him. He's lying on his back with his chest upright. And this view is called a VD view, ventral dorsal. And so what we do is we're taping the wings slightly extended from the body um, and to, to see the coracoid straight on, it's important that he um, is straight on the plate, meaning that his keel is overlying his vertebral column um, as much as possible, and that will give us a head-on view of the coracoids. And we're stepping out of the room. Ready? Shooting. So while that one's developing, we're going to take another view. This one's called the lateral. Because this is a 3D animal and we're looking at 2D images, it's always good to take two views. Right. Ready to shoot the last one. Ready? Shooting. And once the x-ray processes, it's good news for the hawk. Priya is very happy with how the fracture has healed. But everything looks great. I think we can leave the wrap off. Um, we can bring him out just to wake him up. 
So things are looking pretty good for our little red-tailed hawk friend. Yes, right on schedule. <laughs> right, so where does he go? So we're gonna leave the wrap off his wing. Yes, we're leaving the wrap off. We'll leave him inside just for a day or two so he can get used to starting to use the wing a little bit for balance, a little bit stretching, um, so he doesn't freak out when we immediately put him outside. So in a couple of days, then he can be put out into a smaller cage. And I'm hoping that he starts eating better mm -hmm. outside. <laughs> Well, that's exciting. That's good news for him. Yes, yes. Happy to hear it. Yeah. So we can count that as a win. The red-tailed hawk's fracture has healed well after a few weeks of careful treatment. And now he can begin the slow process of reconditioning before he gets released back into the wild. Awesome. And now, as I mentioned earlier, we have to circle back to the scoter because you're probably wondering how things ended up with him. And unfortunately, it's not a happy ending. So if you'd rather not hear this next segment, feel free to fast forward over the next three minutes and 30 seconds until we move on to some slightly lighter topics. But this is the reality of working in wildlife health. It's not all happy endings. So I thought it was important to include this in the episode. So what happened? After we had finished with the hawk, we were just about to get started looking at our next patient when we quickly realized the scoter needed help. We had been monitoring him in recovery all afternoon, and he was looking great. But then, almost out of nowhere, he appeared to suddenly have a seizure-like event. So Priya rushed in to try to stabilize him. Come on, buddy. We're gonna have to intubate him, too. We're doing slight chest compressions. We just gave atropine and epinephrine IV. 200 beats per minute right now. Okay. Come back to us. At this point, Priya and her team had initiated CPR to try and bring him back. They intubated him so they could start breathing for him. And they were also administering emergency drugs and fluids to try to get his heart rate and his pulses back up. The team continued trying to resuscitate him for almost 30 minutes. We saw some glimmers of hope initially, but then it became clear we were losing him. What do you think? I don't think he's going to come back from this. Yeah, I'm not getting, not really feeling any pulse. Yeah. <sighs> I want to take one more lesson and then... It's just too much for him. Yeah. Sorry, buddy. Tried. It's a good effort, though. Yeah. Shortly after the scoter had passed away, Priya gave a quick rundown on what happened. We heard a we heard a sound from the scoter, and we looked over, and he basically had collapsed and was almost in a seizure-like position with his legs stretched out behind him and his wings extended, and he was very stiff. Uh, he didn't have, wasn't moving at all, wasn't blinking at all, so we quickly um, gained airway access, intubated him, started breathing for him, and administering admin, uh, emergency drugs. So we were giving epinephrine and atropine, both um, intramuscularly, intravenously, and through an IO catheter as well. And we started um, what would be like chest compressions uh, to try to stimulate the heart. And we did get the heart rate back up to 200 at one point with a blink reflex, uh, but unfortunately he wasn't strong enough to maintain that. Um, and after 20 minutes, he finally passed. Mm -hmm. 
don't know exactly what happened to cause the Skoder to crash so suddenly, but this is, unfortunately, not an uncommon occurrence in wildlife rehab. Remember, the animals that come in are the sickest of the sick, and sometimes just the stress of being in the clinic and going through treatment can be enough to push them over the edge. But we still have to try. We typically get anywhere from five to 10 animals in the winter time, but that can increase to 20 to 30 animals a day. And when they come in, um, you know, some, some of them are really critical. So we have to triage them quickly, figure out what's going on with them, um, keep everything as low stress as possible. These are wild animals and they're not used to being around people. So we have to just gauge how much we can do with them and how quickly. Um, and then provide them with any pain medications they might need, antibiotics if we see that they have an infection, um, and then most of the time nutritional support. Um, we see a lot of critical cases. Wild animals um, do not want to be captured. That's the um, last thing that they want. So oftentimes by the time they're found or are able to be picked up, they're on death's door. Um, so we have to work quickly to try to help them. So I am doing a lot of hands-on work and I'm getting <laughs> dirty. There's not a day that I don't have poop all over me, but <laughs> that's what being a wildlife vet is. It's not a glamorous job, but I love it. It's very hands-on. I get to work with my patients and see my patients every day. And I think that helps make me a better veterinarian because I can you know, notice certain changes in their behavior and their medical status and address it much faster. One question I had for Zach and Priya was, how has this whole COVID-19 pandemic impacted their work at the center? We had to adapt and pivot like many others. Uh, one of the things we did start was a, an emergency rescue service. So in a normal day, people would usually find animals or animal control officers would find animals and bring them to us. Where we wanted to limit human contact and, and keep everybody as safe as possible, we, we launched this pilot rescue service in which people could report to us animals in need and we could go out with our trained staff and licensed rehabbers and veterinarians, pick these animals up and bring them back. So that was one thing we did. The other thing we did was um, instead of being in the classroom, like we normally would have been two, three days a week, we started doing virtual uh, learning experiences. We started a, a small mini series called Science for Social Distancing, um, in which we did Facebook Lives and live Zooms for classrooms. And we just covered the same type of topics they were learning virtually from home and we'd work with teachers and classrooms and say, listen, what are you having the hardest time teaching in this new format? You know, is it biology, is it chemistry, is it anatomy? How can we help? And so we've started structuring these videos around the same tenets of the Mass Common Core Standards um, and presenting them in the process of animal care. And so we're gonna keep going with those videos. That was a small, a small silver lining to all of this is we probably wouldn't have tried it had we not had a pandemic going on, but now that we have, we see the power in doing it. Um, so it's something we'll continue on into the future. And the last thing I will say is, is due to the amount of person-to-person -person contact in a place like a veterinary hospital, uh, it's been painful. We really had to cut down on the number of volunteers and students, um, which is what really gives this place in both hospitals so much character. Um, but we, you know, we believe in being safe. We wanna preserve the ability to provide these services. So we knew we didn't wanna take um, undue risks. We didn't wanna put any of our constituents at risk. So we've really been operating with a skeleton crew on site since about March. And with the vaccine on the horizon, we're very excited to bring people back into the fold and, and get back there. But um, we just want to thank everybody who supported us throughout the process, either 
being on site or all the work off site because it's it's really um, the only reason we've been able to make it through. And obviously, wildlife are not social distancing. So if you think you've come across a sick or injured wild animal, what should you do? So if you've come across a wild animal that's in need of help, or you assume it's in need of help, our first advice is to not touch it right away. We ask that people observe for a few minutes um, and really use your powers of deductive reasoning. Uh, try to look at how that animal is holding itself. Do you see any blood? Do you see trauma? Is it acting out of the ordinary? Um, and then the next step is usually to call a local wildlife rehabilitator or veterinary hospital in your area to ask for help. And certainly if you're in New England, specifically in Massachusetts, our front desk at Weymouth and our front desk at our Barnstable location are always happy to help. We're available seven days a week and we have an after hours number where we can guide you through the safest way to gather up that animal and bring it in. Or potentially if that animal is healthy, um, the safest way you can send it on your way and ho hopefully learn something in the process. And on that note, if you're interested in an education program anywhere in the country, um, we're doing a lot of Zoom programming and, dis and distance learning. We would love to set up a program with a school or a group or a community organization. Please contact us and you can find all that at capewildlifecenter.com or anywildlife.org. You can find all those links in the show notes. And for any students listening out there who are interested in wildlife or wildlife medicine, New England Wildlife does offer internship programs for both undergrads and vet students. We are still accepting students just at a much um, smaller numbers just to keep everybody safe so we can appropriately social distance while working. Um, but typically our internship program is very hands-on. Uh, we accept students um, of all different backgrounds, um, um, from high school students to undergraduates, veterinary um, students, and then also vet tech students. And you get a very hands-on experience. Um, you're working side by side with volunteers and our technicians and myself, and you're doing exactly what we're doing. You're restraining animals, medicating them, cleaning cages, which we all do, and, um, and just seeing how, you know, what comes in, what the injuries are, and what we can do to make these animals better and hopefully return them to the wild. So hopefully with this episode, we've shown you some of the amazing things they're doing over at New England Wildlife Center, from caring for wildlife to education and helping to preserve public health. And they do all of this as a nonprofit without any government funding. So if you've enjoyed this episode, you can say thanks and give back by visiting those links in the show notes and contributing however you can. It would mean so much to us. The best way to support us is to visit our website, capewildlifecenter.com or newildlifecenter.org. There you can either make an online contribution, you can send a check. In normal times when things open up, you can come see us, which we strongly encourage. And we also have wish lists on there, which are items and durable goods that we depend on to help our patients. There's no end to the ways uh, you can help and no end to the need for help. Um, but a contribution of any amount makes a huge difference and makes a real and immediate impact in the lives of our community and our patients. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Wildlife Health Connections podcast. If you liked what you heard, go hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. You can check us out on social media for some good content and advance notice of upcoming episodes. You can also get more information at wildlifehealth.org slash podcast.